We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness today is Chester Elton, who is an executive coach and the author of Leading with Gratitude, Eight Leadership Practices for Extraordinary Business Results, for which he surveyed one million working adults and interviewed a host of top business leaders. He also hosts his own live stream each week on LinkedIn. There are two reasons why I wanted to have Chester on my programme. Firstly, I have a suspicion there's a link between gratitude and having a meaningful life, and I want to explore the idea further. But most of all, because he wrote an article called Being Grateful for Hard Times. I thought, wow, that's hardcore. I want to know more about that. So welcome, Chester. I think we should sort of start right at the very basics and actually just talk about what we mean about gratitude, because I think sometimes it can just be confused with being nice. So perhaps you can explain exactly what you mean. Yes, uh, great question. By the way, delighted to be on your show. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted that you liked the article. (laughs) You know, gratitude to me is more of an emotional connection. It's more than being just kind. It gets to the essence of who you are. Are you really grateful for the people around you, the opportunities that you have, you know, particularly during the pandemic? You know, are you grateful to be able to breathe easily? I think gratitude takes us to a more emotional level and it takes us to to our core values. Who are we and and what are we really grateful for? What what is really meaningful in our lives? Is that helpful? Most definitely so. I think who am I is sort of one of the central questions we often end up talking about on this podcast. And actually, if we can get deeper into ourselves, because I think to be grateful, you have to sort of stop and look inside and actually see what you feel. So I can see how that might connect with who who am I? Exactly. So thank you for that. You know, one one last thing on that. I think that gratitude also, you mentioned in the intro, the connection between being leading with gratitude in the workplace and having a grateful life. You know, at the end of our book, Leading with Gratitude, we actually have living a grateful life. <laughs> and, and what's really interesting, lovely that you connected the dots, that we have all the data. You, you mentioned over a million engagement surveys. We have a motivators assessment. 90,000 people have taken that, that it's a great way to lead in work. It's also just a better way to live. And the way you start and end your days and the way you adjust that attitude really does make for a less stressful, a more meaningful, and, and I think a, a better way to live. So let's go right back to the beginning of your life. What did you learn about gratitude from your parents? Great question. I am one of the luckiest guys I know in the fact that I grew up in a ridiculously happy household. You know, I have four amazing older brothers. Uh, My mother and father were married for 65 years. I never heard my father ever raise his voice to my mother. In fact, growing up, if I were with my dad and my mom would walk by or come into the room, he would nudge me and he'd say, look at your mom. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she talented? Aren't we lucky? I mean, that's where I grew up. My dad was one of those guys that you just wanted to be around because you were impressed that he was such a good guy. But what you walked away with was he made you feel like you were a great guy. You know, he he just had that impact on people. So yes, I I grew up in a a household that was 
was very grateful. We're a faith-based family. We believe, you know, in a higher power. We believe that we're part of something bigger, that we have an obligation to be of service to our our, our fellow men and women. And uh, yeah, I, I pinch myself. I love that you asked that question because growing up, and not that we didn't have hard times. Clearly we did. And I will mention my parents had seven children. Five survived. Seven. Seven. Gosh. Now, this is back in the day, right? I mean, my dad was born in 1920. You know, their only daughter died when she was five years old in a car accident uh, away from home. It was heartbreaking for them. I had a younger brother who uh, died in the hospital. It was clearly a doctor's mistake he shouldn't have. And yet through all that tragedy and heartache, they never lost sight of the fact that life was good, that they had five amazing boys that they were madly in love and that they could be of service. I grew up coming to the breakfast table and it wasn't unusual. There would be somebody at the breakfast table and I didn't know who they were, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was really interesting. You'll, you'll get a kick out of this. I would say, look, I know that I live here. I don't know who you are. It's clear that you live here now too. So what's the story? You know, my parents would collect people that needed help and our home was a safe harbor. And I will tell you that, um, Andrew, that my wife and I have unknowingly, it was really funny, replicated that. We've probably had 30 different people come and live with us, whether they needed a safe harbor or they just needed a, a place for a couple of weeks. They were in between houses or needed to save some money. We live outside New York City. We had a couple of nieces come live with us to save money for a down payment on the expensive, you know, uh, shoebox apartments in New York. I could go on and on about the impact my parents have had on me. And without question, that life of gratitude and caring for others was part of our everyday lives. Because I think there's almost two ways of looking at the world. There's a way of looking at the world that there is abundance and that you'll get what you need. And then there's another way of looking at the world that it's a world of scarcity and you have to hold on to everything you've got because it's going to be taken away from you. And that very fundamental attitude is going to affect how you respond to gratitude, isn't it? Uh, no question. If you have an abundance mentality, giving gratitude and expressing gratitude becomes very easy. If you are of a scarcity mentality, you hold everything close. And I mean everything, not just your money and your resources, your emotions, your friendship, your service. And uh, your world becomes very small when you have a scarcity mentality. When you have an abundance mentality, and I would say a spirit of gratitude, the world opens up and becomes a marvelous place of friendship and engagement and opportunity. And so if somebody is suddenly thinking, oh, actually, I think I've most probably got the scarcity rather than the abundance way of looking at the world. Have you got any suggestions of how they might challenge that scarcity? I do. Some simple little things. I, I love tradition. You know, I, I love that you can set up triggers, I like to call them, that remind you of how fortunate you are. My wife is wonderful about this. Depending on the season, she'll decorate in a meaningful way. We've, we've got simple uh, traditions at the dinner table. For example, when we have the kids over, we say, look, there are three questions you need to answer at the dinner table. One is, tell us about the best part of your day. So again, that abundance mentality, I've had something good happens, hopefully, in every day. Two, tell us about someone you're grateful for who's not at the table. And thirdly, express your gratitude for somebody at the table who hasn't been thanked yet. And it creates this wonderful abundance of, of giving. You know, you get to talk about your day. You get to talk about somebody that helped you during the day at work or at school. And, and you get to express your gratitude for someone at the table. I love that trigger. We have a tradition, my wife and I, at the end of the day. We say, no matter where we are in the world, we, we try to connect and we say, what are your three? And we say, 
what are three things you're grateful for today? And you know what's really wonderful is it's often more than three things. You start to think about your day, an interaction you had, and you know we've got two wonderful grandkids that live three blocks away. We see them all the time. And, and it's, it's a lovely way to end the day. Now, research has shown that when you end your day with that kind of thought pattern, the stimuli and whatnot helps you to relax. It lowers your anxiety. It, you'll, you'll sleep a little better. Your, your relationships become a little deeper because you're not beating yourself up on all the things you did wrong. You know, let's face it, as, as humans, we remember every mistake we ever made. We discount every success we've ever had, right? And and it's we've got it we've got it backwards. And you're laughing because you know it's true, right? You you talk to athletes, they'll remember every shot they missed and celebrate a, a few they made. So change that, flip it upside down. And I think one of the things that I found really helpful is set up little traditions, little triggers. Not only at the end of the day do my wife and I do that, the beginning of every day. I write down five things that I'm grateful for. When my feet hit the floor in the morning, I have a little mantra and I say, today, be kind, be grateful, and be of service. Because part of that abundance mentality is serving other people, not taking, giving. I like that. Just repeat your mantra again for me. Be kind, be grateful, and be of service. It's much easier to be all of those things when the world is really rather kind to you. But unfortunately, the world isn't always kind. So how and why should we be grateful for hard times? Yes. And uh, by the way, I have to tell you a cute story about that article. I published it in LinkedIn. It's the Gratitude Journal. It's our, our newsletter on LinkedIn. And there were so many positive responses to that, that yes, I'm grateful for hard times. That's when I really found out who I was. It's easy to be happy and engaged when things are going well. When things are hard, that's when you find out, are your core values really your core values? Can you be who you are in the hardest of times? And so I got a lot of that kind of feedback. One was was delightful. The guy said, I've printed this out and I've posted it on, on my bathroom mirror as a reminder. Because one of the messages in the article was, in hard times, don't ask yourself, why me? And wallow in the misery. Ask yourself, what am I supposed to learn? What am I learning? How am I growing? How am I developing? Well, in the middle of all these wonderful posts about the article, there was a guy in the middle and he said, very simple. He said, you're an idiot. That was his, that was, you're an idiot. And I thought, how do I respond to that? <laughs> you know, and, and so I responded and I said, thank you. My children would agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, hopefully he got the message and it made him laugh because, you know, I thought I've been taught to assume positive and, you know, assume the best about people. And 99% of the time you'll be right. There is that 1% lunatic fringe, no question. Assume positive intent. And so when he posted that, my first reaction was, I'll bet that guy's having a tough day. And you know what? Maybe I can say something to make him laugh, you know, and, and just brighten his day a little bit because I don't know him. He doesn't know me that he called me an idiot. Like I said, I, I know a lot of people that would agree, <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to let it ruin my day. And hopefully I can lift him up a little bit. Does that make sense? It makes 100% sense. Let's turn to work because it's much easier to be grateful for your wife, your husband, your children. I mean, you know, we love these people. But when you go to work, I mean, there's some real, I was going to use a disgusting word, but you can <laughs> fill one in for me. You know, there are some people who just are a little bit of a pain. And generally, they tend to be working in the desk next to you. <laughs> How do you do grateful at work? 
Yes, you know, our research was really interesting. You know, my co-author, Adrian Gostick, who is the brilliant writer behind all the books that we've written together, our research showed that the workplace was the least likely place people felt comfortable expressing gratitude. And isn't that a shame? Because we spend most of our life at work, right? We spend more time at work than we do at home. And so we did take a deep dive on that. And what do you do when you've got a miserable coworker? Or even worse, you've got a miserable boss who you're pretty sure has set a goal at the beginning of every day to make your life as miserable as his or hers, you know? And and I, I got some wonderful advice uh, from my mentor and friend, Marshall Goldsmith, who is the world's greatest executive coach and has, has mentored me the last four or five years in, in marvelous ways. The advice that he gave me, I would like to give to your listeners. And that is, you can only control what you can control, right? And when you set a goal to be kind, to be grateful, to be of service, you can control you. You can't control other people. You can hopefully influence other people. You're never going to be able to control them. And so don't worry about the stuff you can't control. Worry about how are you doing? Take care of yourself and then be grateful and share that with other people. And if they don't get it, they don't get it. And you know what? That's okay. Don't let it ruin what you're building. And I hope that's helpful. Does that make sense to you? It makes an awful lot of sense. I often do an exercise with my clients where we do an inner circle, which is the circle of control. And then the outer circle is the circle of concern. And the problem is, if something's in our zone of concern, like the fact that our boss is a, a mean and moody person, we want to put it in our zone of control. And we can't. And actually seeing what is your zone of concern and what is your zone of control is really important. So let's just tap down what can we control. Let's just be very clear of that. What do you think we can control? I, I think we can control our mindset. We can control our, our emotions, right? That's why I love the mantra. Get up in the morning and you know have your own little mantra, whatever it might be. You know, I, I'm reading a wonderful book by Jay Shetty called uh, Think Like a Monk. And uh, I, I love the the Buddhist philosophy. I have dear friends that are Buddhists, and they're encouraging me to become a Christian Buddhist. Said it's more of a philosophy than a religion. You can be Buddhist and be whatever you want. And there was a, a section I read just yesterday, and it, it had a profound effect on me. He said, you know, you've got to make your inner voice, you've got to make your mind your friend. And th this is why it impacted me so profoundly, is that we say things to ourselves that we would never say to a friend or a loved one or a coworker. We are we are often mean to ourselves. We'll say, oh, how could you be so stupid? I can't believe you made that mistake again. Why did you trust that person? You know better. You know, what is going on? And we will say these things to ourselves. We would never say that to our child or our spouse. And yet we say it to ourselves. And I love this concept of make your mind your friend. Encourage yourself. I loved doing it this morning. You know, I didn't sleep particularly well. And I got up and I said, you know what? Despite not having, you're going to have a great day today. You're going to talk to some interesting people. You know, Andrew's going to show up. I'm sure he's delightful. We've never met. Why wouldn't he be? Right. And uh, we're going to have some fascinating conversations. Don't worry about not getting some good sleep for whatever reason. You know, we worry about things that my dad had a great expression. He'd say, don't tell me not to worry. 99% of the things I worry about never happen. <laughs> You know, and I'm sure it's because I'm worrying about it, right? Which, of course, is, is not true. So, you know, let's be kind to ourselves. If you're in a workplace where people are miserable, at least be kind to yourself. Tell yourself, you know what? You're having a good day today. You know what? You're a good person. Don't let that bother you. Be kind. Be generous.
Give me the name of that book again, and we'll put it in our show notes. The one about the monk. Yes, Think Like a Monk, Jay Shetty, S-H-E-T-T-Y. Put it right after Leading with Gratitude by Costigan Elm. (laughs) (laughs) So you believe that there's a gratitude gap. What do you mean by that? This was, again, this is related to the workplace. We found a great study and and have proved it out on our own to to be true. Leaders were asked, do you feel like you give above average appreciation, recognition, expressions of gratitude in the workplace? And almost 70% said, oh yeah, I'm really good at that. Their direct reports were asked the same question. Do you think your boss is above average in giving expressions of gratitude, recognition, and uh, appreciation. And you can guess only 23% said yes. So there's there was this huge perception gap. As leaders, we often think, oh, listen, I'm great about you know giving praise. And, and don't they get a little bit of recognition every two weeks in their paycheck? Uh, isn't that a little bit of recognition? And, and uh, leaders become a little self-absorbed. You know, they're reporting to bosses or they're getting hard things done and they feel pretty good about themselves. Why wouldn't everybody else? And that's that what we call uh, intentionality and discipline is that we get all kinds of myths. Uh, you'll, you'll love this, Andrew. Like people need too much recognition these days. And uh, if you give it too much, it'll become meaningless. Well, none of that is true. You know, as we coach up executives, particular on this issue, we say, look, if you think you're doing it too much, it's probably about right. Because trust me, nobody at the end of the day goes home and gathers their family around them and says, you know what? I had the worst day. To- I couldn't get anything done. It was one thank you note after another. It was a team meeting and they put me on a pedestal. I, they, there was balloons. There were cakes. I could I, I got to start working from home. You know, nobody says that. Nobody. So if you think you're doing it too much, you know, you're probably about right. I spend most of my time listening to couples, and I'm afraid to say, if you end up in my office, the likelihood of a lot of gratitude around is quite low. I've certainly used to hearing people want too much praise. They want praise for emptying the dishwasher. But the other one I get a lot of is, well, there's no time. I'm just simply too busy to give praise. What do you do with that myth about gratitude? Yeah, you know what? That's the one that bugs me the most. Like seriously, of all the myths, you know, some of my, I can see I can get there. I don't have enough time. That is inexcusable. And let me tell you why. How long does it take you to text somebody? Seconds. And that's if you're really not good. Uh, How long does it take you to write a, a handwritten note, put a stamp on it and put it out for the postman? Five minutes, maybe, right? How long does it take you to say, hey, honey, I really appreciate you doing the dishes. That's a few seconds. Stop it. You know, we, we actually did this in the workplace. Leaders, on average, worked about 50 hours a week. They tend to work a little more than a 40-hour week, right? It was about an hour a week. These were the leaders that were really good at it. It was about an hour a week. Take two hours out of 100 hours. It's 2% of your time. 2%. And by the way, the more you do it, the better you get, the more efficient you are, the more you can do in less time. Don't tell me you don't have time because here's, here's, and here's the trap. You know, leaders will say it all the time. Oh, Look, I'm doing hard stuff. This is soft stuff. If I had time for soft stuff, it'd be great, right? I'm doing hard stuff. The soft stuff is the hard stuff. Let me ask you this. You don't have time to tell Andrew he's doing a great job. He's knocked it out of the park. And somehow at the end of the year, we'll celebrate. I love that one. 364 days a year, it's a living hill. But that one day, you know, the the, the staff party, open bar, you don't want to miss that. You know, ridiculous. I said, look, you don't have time to tell Andrew he's doing a great job. Andrew screws up. How much time you got for him now? Oh, plenty of time. Oh, you know, you're on that in a New York minute, 
right? I, I, I was doing this down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, southern states. Guy says, oh, man, I'm on that like a duck on a June bug. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> I think it means fast. It sounds quick. Yeah, yeah, it sounds quick. A duck and a June bug, that was probably a, you know, a violent and quick experience. So this idea that I don't have time to celebrate the good things that are going on. By the way, in a marriage, I believe it's the same way. One of my expressions of love for my wife is I clean the kitchen. My wife, over the years, has gone from being somebody who makes food to a cook to now she is a chef. She wouldn't agree. I would. She makes amazing meals. She also has not only a talent for making good food, she has a talent while she's making that good food to use almost every spoon, knife, fork, dish, spatula in the kitchen to make that meal. And you know what? It delights me to be her sous chef and to clean up afterwards. And that's one of my expressions of love. It doesn't take me very long. Actually, you know, depending on the meal, it takes me. And the delight that I get when she comes down and sees a spotless kitchen after making a meal, not only does it make her feel great, it makes me feel great to let her know that she knows that I'm willing to take 30 minutes out of my day to clean up after a, a marvelous meal. I mean, of course you have time. If, if the relationship means anything to you, you find the time. You can't make time. Everybody gets 24 hours. You can find the time. And the more you find time to do those simple, random acts of kindness, simple expressions of gratitude, trust me, I've been happily married for 37 years, and I can't wait for the next 37. One of the things that women often tell me is that if they weren't so tired, because they've been tidying up the kitchen, they'd have more time to get uh, intimate in the bedroom. <laughs> and that research underlines that the more you do around the house, the more likely you are to be satisfied in the bedroom. Uh, yeah. Have you heard that one? I haven't. It makes perfect sense. I will tell you, I saw a cute little video the other day of a father and son, older father, young son, and they're playing the truth or dare. And they're, they're doing shots, right? Tequila shots or whatever it is. And the father says truth. And the son says, okay, dad, how often do you and mom have sex? And he goes, well, whoa, whoa, that's a pretty personal question. He said, hey, it's truth or dare. He says, the truth is almost every day. He says, dad, you're going to be kidding me. He says, no, no, no. We almost had sex on Monday. We almost had sex on Tuesday. We almost had sex, he says, we almost had sex every day. <laughs> I thought I thought that was such a brilliant answer to a more than personal question. And you know what? I know that you'll use that in your counseling. <laughs> so the important thing is not just to be grateful, but that it's actually got three things. You say it's got to be authentic, specific, and timely. Now, I certainly agree with the authentic because who wants hollow praise? But can you explain to me why these three things are so important? Well, general praise has no impact. You know, if you just come, oh, love you, love you, love you, or you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. It doesn't mean anything. The specificity makes it meaningful and, and gives it validity. I really appreciate the way you handled that. That was a difficult customer. It was a difficult conversation. They were angry when they came in. You solved the problem. They were happy when they went out. That specificity makes it authentic right? You know, when you've been married for a long time and you're in a happy relationship, you can say, I love you, and it, and it has meaning. What gives it more depth is when my wife says, thank you so much for cleaning the kitchen. I would have been happy to do it. I'm delighted that you did. I love you. That specificity makes it very authentic. 
It's really important because the closer the recognition is to the behavior, the more likely it is to be uh, uh, repeated and appreciated. There's nothing worse than saying, do you remember, you know, in the workplace, right? Uh, I've been meaning to say thank you for that project that you headed up. I think it was last year. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? It has, it, it, it has uh, no meaning. So it's authentic. It's specific. It's timely. Now, I would add one more to that. And that, again, is frequency. Do it often. Do it often. If you want a culture in your relationship, at work, in your marriage, frequency is so important. How, how do you build great traditions? You do them again and again and again. Look at Buddhism. Why is Buddhism have so much traction with people in mindfulness and meditation? Because they've been doing it for thousands of years, right? So stations, start your triggers, whether it's at the dinner table, it's at the end of the day, it's the beginning of the day, it's your mantra, it's your meditation, it's your, it's, it's your, your inner voice being kind. Start it today, do it again tomorrow. Before you know it, you've been doing it for a month and then a year and then 10 years. And if you're as lucky as I am, 37 years. My wife and I have developed these wonderful traditions of expressions of love. And by the way, it's not like we've had 37 uninterrupted years of bliss. That would be ridiculous. Of course, we've gone through hard times. Of course, we'd have trouble with our kids and careers and those moments when we thought all was lost. And yet we could always depend on each other. Why? Because we have a tradition of trust and love and gratitude. But I know that you're a human being. So I'm sure there are times when you don't follow your own advice. So fess up. <laughs> oh, sure. You're, that was probably you that put that comment. You're an idiot in, in the middle of my wonderful article in Embrace Pantone. No, no. <laughs> of, of course, of course. And, and, you know, that's where I think, and this was, again, uh, a lot of help from my wife and my kids and wonderful people that are in my life. This is where forgiveness becomes really important. You have to say, yes, I didn't do that right and you ask for forgiveness from the people that you've offended and from yourself. And by the way, I think the latter is much harder. I think we're harder on ourselves than anyone else. And forgiving yourself is really important. The realization that you've made a horrible mistake or said something completely insensitive. Give yourself grace on that, that you've admitted it, that you've forgiven yourself, and then go make it right with whomever you've offended. Those are hard things to do. There isn't a day go by that I don't make a mistake. You know, I'm I'm daily repenting and asking for forgiveness. And I think that's an important trigger as well. Did I forgive myself today? Did I make it right? And were you expressing gratitude to people you came across? Or did you, like I did in the other day in the supermarket, lose my temper? So I'm just going to fess up on that one. We live in very stressful times at the moment, and some people take out their fears on us. And, you know, I've got enough fears of my own, thank you. And I have to tell you, it's much harder to lose your temper. I live in Berlin. It's much harder to lose your temper in a foreign language. It's so easy to, <laughs> to, uh, to do it in your own language. Yes, and yet I'm sure there are several words in German that, with that uh, percussive language that makes it really ring true. I think in, in moments like that, and certainly we all lose our temper. You know, the point is, I think, is you take a beat and you don't, don't say, you know, why are they saying such hurtful things to me? You say, why would they say such hurtful? What's going on with them? And I think you'll find that they're in, in, in a much worse place than you will ever be. I, let me tell you a, a, a quick story. And, and this is a lesson my father taught me through example when I was very young. 
I grew up, my, you know, I have four older brothers. I mean, you can imagine my poor mom. We're all into sports. We broke everything in the house time and time again. Well, we're a tennis family. One of the things we love to do is we'd go play tennis. And being the youngest, as everyone moved out, my dad and I became tennis partners. We'd go play tennis Saturday morning and we'd go for breakfast together. And then we'd go off to the Army and Navy. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful city. And my dad loved the bargains at the Army and Navy. It was a discount place. You know, they'd buy distressed businesses. You get stuff, 10 cents in the dollar. My dad loved this place. Well, it was in a, a fairly uh, rough neighborhood called Gastown. So we'd park the car and we'd have to walk past Pigeon Park where the homeless people would live. And as we were on our way, one beautiful Saturday morning, and I'll never forget it, even though I was quite young at the time, a homeless lady was coming across the street with a brown paper sack with everything she owned. And it split open and spilled on the sidewalk. Now, Vancouver, downtown, very much a walking city, lots of people on the sidewalk. Everybody just broke eye contact, gave her a and kept moving, which is what you do in embarrassing situations. And everyone did, except for my dad. And I'll never forget, I was at the time quite shocked. He stopped, went up to her right away. He knelt down, he helped her get up. He said something to make her laugh. I'll never forget that. That was my dad. And he got her safely in the park. I'm watching this whole thing and it comes back to me. And, you know, being a teenager, I said, dad, you know, you probably shouldn't touch those people. They're not clean. And he said something I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, you know what, Chess? You be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day. And I never forgot that. You know, as a leader at work, you don't know what people that just came to work, you don't know what they came from. They're worried about losing their jobs or they don't have enough money to pay the bills or they've got a child that's not learning because all of a sudden it's remote. You don't know any of that. What you do know is that the time they spend with you, that they can believe what they do matters that they're making a difference. And when they made a difference, you noticed it and you celebrated it. You said, thank you, right? Now, to me, it's it's, it's the same thing in, in the supermarket. And do I do it every time? Of course I don't. Of course, you know, I can be enraged like anyone else. The fact is, is when that person acted out and ruin, was ruining your shopping experience, you don't know what they just came from. So take a beat and say, gosh, for them to blow up like that, there's a lot going on there. I can either react and feed that you know, and feed that anger, or I can take a step back and say, hey, I'm sorry if I've upset you. What can I do to make this right? And just diffuse the situation because they're unhappy for a lot of reasons. Why join them? And yes, this is what you should do. Do I do it 100% of the time? No, I don't. I've said mean things to my kids. I've said mean things to you. And yet I know that. And, and if I can take a beat, I can go back and hopefully re repair that situation. I hope that story was helpful. It was very helpful. And I think it's really difficult if you are in the caring professions, because you can just sort of get worn out by, you know, if you're being caring for four hours with you coaching and whatever, and you're being kind and encouraging and grateful, don't you get just a bit compassion worn out? <laughs> well, see, this is where I think it's really important that you have your own traditions and your own triggers to make sure you're starting the day well, that you're taking breaks during the day. You know, uh, you can get Zoomed out as, as wonderful as Zoom is and Squadcast and wh whatever platform you're using. You know, sitting in front of a camera for hours on end, you know, make sure that you're building in breaks, that you're reading something interesting. Treat yourself at the end of the day to binge watch something on Netflix. <laughs> you know, my brother recommended to me the English game on Netflix. By the way, fabulous if you're a sports fan and, and English football in particular. It's done by the same guys as Downton Abbey. And you know what? I said, you know what? I'm going to treat myself. And every night I'm going to carve out an hour and just enjoy Netflix. That's okay. 
Give yourself permission to unwind. Give yourself permission, by the way, to go on a walk and say all those mean things that you wanted to say and just say it to the trees. <laughs> Get it off your chest and then move on. So yes, as a caring professional, and you know this better than anyone, you can't give what you don't have. If you've exhausted yourself, you're not going to give good advice. So make sure that you're feeding you know, your emotions and that you're taking care of yourself as well. Very, very, very important. And somebody to take care of you as well, so that you actually ask for the care when you need it. You know, this is such a wonderful statement. And let me tell you why it resonates with me so profoundly. Many of us love to give. We feel good about giving. It makes us feel good. And I think you're one of those guys, aren't you? Yes. We don't like to ask. We don't like to ask because we think, oh, we're so blessed. We have so much to give. Why would I ever ask? And then I had a friend take me aside and he said, Chester, you need to ask for help. Even when you don't really need it, you need to ask for help. And I said, well, why would I do that? He said, you know, when you give, how do you feel? I said, oh, I feel great. I feel wonderful that I can give of my self, of my time, of my treasure to help someone else. He's great. Why would you rob someone else of that opportunity? Why would you not give them the opportunity to serve you and let them feel good about themselves? And you know what? <laughs> I hung my head and I went, you're right. You're absolutely right. Let people serve you. You know, when we have people come over and, and we have a wonderful meal, you know what I do? I say, hey, I'd really appreciate some help in the kitchen cleaning up. And you know what? They're delighted to do it. And we can have a wonderful conversation while we do it. And when the kitchen is all spick and span, I say, boy, just, I really appreciate your help. Say, you know what? What do they always say? I'm glad you asked. Thank you for letting me serve. Well, we're going to let you serve a little bit to help one of my listeners with a letter. And we're going to be doing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. My guest on The Meaningful Life is Chester Elton, and we're talking about gratitude and actually being grateful during hard times. And we're going to put that to the test because I've certainly got a hard time for you to talk about. My husband began an affair in May with his younger co-worker. I confronted him about my suspicions in June, and he told me he wasn't happy. He wanted to break up, but insisted she wasn't a factor. He then said he wanted to work on us, and we spent the summer trying to fix things, though not well, and my emotions definitely pushed him further towards her. I found out last month that it was a real affair. He's still claiming no sex. I know otherwise. I found some letters to her. He really seems totally in love. A lot of the things he used to say to me, he's now saying to her, but even more. He seems desperate for her love and attention. He doesn't sound like himself. Anyway, with me, he's claiming he's confused. We argue terribly. I push and ask questions. He freaks out and shuts down. This last weekend, we yelled and he planned on breaking up with her. On Monday, he was back to wanting her. And now he's secretly planning on moving out without telling me. He did the same when he found out about the affair in October. Since he lies to me so much, it is difficult to believe he's confused. Why would he make secret plans to move out if any part of him wanted to stay? I don't know how to cope with him actually moving out because at that point, she wins. 
So do I just give up? I know I can't control him, but he still says things like, if we were communicating better and he could relax around me, he'd give her up. I doubt that's true, though. The things he says to her are the feelings I've always wanted him to express to me. Why didn't I deserve those things? Why is he trying to be better for her? Is it real love? I don't want them to be happy again. It's not fair. So, Chester, it's difficult to be grateful in hard times, isn't it? It is. And uh, certainly, you know, your patient that uh, wrote that letter is going through really ridiculously hard times. You know, the one thing that that letter said that resonated with me is if he goes, she wins. Yeah, that really struck me very strongly, too. Yeah, that there's this competition and the prize is her husband. And, and I think y- you need to change that mindset. It's not about winners and losers, although there will be clearly in the end, right? You've got to say, well, what is it that you really want? I mean, you're in a relationship where you don't trust your partner. You're not happy. You're angry all the time. You want it to be all these wonderful things that perhaps you had at the beginning of your relationship. You know, first off, I'd say, look, seek some really deep counseling. You need someone to to mediate in this relationship, much like in the workplace, when there are things in the workplace that go awry, you know, there are employee assistance programs, there's HR and so on that can come in and mediate. You need to have someone to mediate because there clearly is a complete lack of trust. And until you can restore that, nothing good is going to happen. If you don't believe what you're telling each other, and if everything the other person says is suspect, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. So I would seek mediation on that. And then at some point, you've just really got to say, look, don't worry about him or the other woman or winning or losing. What is it that you want? How do you want to feel? What do you want for the rest of your life? If it includes your husband, then get some mediation and work really hard at it and do all you can. If it doesn't work out, you need to move on and say, look, what do I want? How do I want to feel? What kind of a relationship do I want to be in? Because, you know, there are times when everything you do, no matter what you do, it just doesn't work out. You know, you don't always win. What are you learning from this situation? What can you take forward? You know, how has this made you not a good person? How is it helping you become a better person? You know, it's a real mess. I I am not a marriage counselor. I'm a workplace expert. I think a lot of the principles do translate. I would get into deep mediation, get your husband to commit to that, have some really honest and open discussions, and then figure out where to go from there. And it may be able to repair your relationship. It may not. And you've got to be prepared for both. I think the biggest question is, when you wake up in the morning, how are you feeling about your circumstance, yourself, and who you are? And if you don't like it, you need to change it. And you need to find out what's going to make you a better person first so that you can share that better person with your spouse and people around you. Now, I have rambled. I've admitted I'm not a marriage counselor. Does any of that resonate with you? Am I giving even remotely good advice here? I think you're right about thinking about yourself and what you want in the bigger picture, because the problem is, what do you want? That can quite easily be my husband, and I want him as he was beforehand. But let's actually look at the bigger picture of that and actually see what are the other things that are making you happy and actually making you feel stable and good. We're back to feeding yourself. It sounds like, you know, you've been trying to make him change his mind. You've been actually putting all your attention on him. Actually, there's not been very much attention on yourself. You haven't actually 
practiced any self-care, it sounds to me. The one thing I really want to say is all of this, you know, why didn't I deserve this nice behavior that this other woman is getting? And unfortunately, we think we are as we are treated. So if somebody treats you badly, you think it's about you. But generally, if somebody's behaving badly, it's about them. So it's not about you. It's about him. He is, for some reason, desperately unhappy at the moment. Now, why that is, he will say is down to you. But you're only a small part of his life and a small part of his world. If he actually doesn't particularly like himself, he's not going to feel very loved by anybody. And that might be the reason why he's so desperate to get her approval, because he sort of somehow feels if he has her approval, he'll feel good about himself. And we're back to that sort of gratitude thing, aren't we? That you're trying to extract the gratitude out of other people when you're not actually feeling particularly good about yourself. And that's a very dark place to be in, isn't it, Chester? It is. And I think that's that inner voice. You know, you're telling yourself that you're worthless, that you're not deserving, and so on. The other thing I would say is, you know, the part of the letter said, we, we screamed all weekend. Why would you want to be involved in that? You know, you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, well, how often are we going to scream at each other today? You know, one of the things, again, back to my, my mom and dad, they said, you know, if you want to drive somebody crazy who's being mean to you, love them back. And I said, what, 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 what do you mean by that, dad? He goes, seriously, you know, when, when people are, are angry with you and they're yelling at you, they want to fight. Don't fight. Love them back. And say, you know what, I can see your point. What can I do to make this better? The best revenge, you know, if you want revenge, because the best revenge is live well. Be happy. You know, your enemies want you to be miserable. If they see you happy, it's going to drive them crazy. So the best revenge is live well. Maybe in your relationship, what you should do is, is, is in a day, prepare a great meal. Be happy. Be glad to see them. You know, one of the things that we put at the end of our book, Leading with Gratitude, is so often we give so much at work that we have nothing left when we come home. We leave our best selves at work and we tell our executives, don't do that. And one of the things that you can do to start it off right is when you get home. And by the way, if you're working remotely, home is I walk through the door. <laughs> you know, there's no decompression in the commute. When you walk through the door and you see your spouse or your kids, be happy to see them perk up instead of saying, you know what? Uh, hold off on all the hugs and kisses. Just give me an hour to decompress. Uh, let me get a drink or a coffee or, you know, uh, 30 minutes on Netflix. No. When you walk through the door, go, hey, so glad to be home. Give me a hug. Do you know what I mean? And back to what can I control? You can control your behavior. So if you're finding that you're pushing for answers and you know where that's going to go, he's going to freak out and shut down and you're going to be even more upset. Just say, okay, this isn't working. I'm going to go away. We can come back and talk about it later. You are in control of your behavior. So the things that don't work on your side, try doing them differently. Do the opposite of what you're currently doing. You can only change yourself. Your husband is confused because he's in a dark place. He thinks that this woman is going to be the answer to his problems. It's just going to make his life even more complicated, and it's going to make it ultimately more of a problem. So he, <laughs> it's going to sound a bit strange. But at this precise moment, I'm feeling a little bit of pity for him, to be perfectly honest, because he's trying to solve what is probably a deep personal problem in the wrong place. 
and you can't solve your personal problems by rushing around and finding somebody else to make you happy and take your mind off that internal deep problem. It's very easy for him not to face that and either blame you or think he's going to find a solution on the other side of the moon, because of course the moon is made of cream cheese. <laughs> but one of these days, he's just going to have to turn around and look at himself. And at the moment, you're providing plenty of distraction to stop him from looking at himself. So when he drives you up the wall, step away. I hope that was helpful. If you'd like to have an issue of yours discussed by me and my guests, join us in the supporters club of The Meaningful Life here. You'll find details on my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. One of the other advantages, of course, of joining is you get to hear the bonus material, which later Chester and I'll be talking about, the three things he knows to be true deep down. These are things he knows to be really true. But before we move on to that, Chester, you are the witness today on what makes life meaningful. So what makes your life meaningful? You know, great question. I have a, a simple answer to that, actually. It's, it's my faith, my family, and my friends. You know, my faith that keeps me connected to something that I believe is much bigger than myself. And I love that, that there are, are people that are put in my life and that, that there's a, a God in heaven that loves and cares for me is, is a deep part of my belief. My family, there's a wonderful quote that I love to talk about that no success in business can ever compensate for failure in the home. Wonderful philosopher, David O. McKay. And then friends. You know, I think friends really enrich our lives. And it's really, I, I've been lucky. I've been surrounded by amazing people that build me up teach me, mentor me, scold me, correct me, push me to be better. And, and I am one of the really fortunate people in that I would say almost every member of my family and extended family, they're not only members of my family, they are my friends. And for that, I am deeply, deeply grateful. And why is it important to be connected to something bigger than yourself? Because I, I think there are those times when you really do feel completely alone and you feel abandoned. And I've been there, you've been there. Everybody listening to this podcast has been there at some point. Where do you go? Where do you go when you feel like you can't go to your family or your spouse? You can't go to your friends. It's too embarrassing. To me, I can always go to my God. I can get on my knees. I can say my prayers. I can put my faith in him. I'm a very devout Christian. And I believe that uh, Jesus Christ is my savior, that he gave his life for my sins. And that if he can make that sacrifice for me, I can come out of the darkest times knowing that he cares for me and that this is but a short time. You know, I believe in an existence after this, so that this time, as horrible as it might be in the moment, is but a blip on the scale of eternity. And the things that I'm supposed to learn in this dark time will help me in that journey. And so I think faith, and, and by the way, I am a Christian, that is my faith. I have friends that are, are Buddhists, that are of the Jewish faith, that are, are Muslims, that every color of the rainbow and, and I love that they are dedicated and have that deep faith, but it, because I think that emotional support and that spiritual support helps them. In fact, I know it does as it helps me. So don't think of this as me recruiting you to my faith by any means. I think that that belief in a higher power, for me at least, is really important and makes me feel valued and secure and of worth. Because actually, if you put yourself at the center of the universe and everything's going wrong, then we're back to what did I do wrong? <laughs> and I think your question, what have I got to learn, is a far better question, ultimately. So thank you very much for sharing that and everything else. And I'm incredibly grateful for you joining me here today. 
as I am I to be your guest. And uh, and thank you for, you know, promoting this idea of gratitude. I, I really do believe that it's much better for us to count our blessings than to recount our failures. And uh, it, it does help. I love that we published this book. Adrian, as I mentioned, is the brilliant writer. This is our 13th book. So we hope it's lucky 13 for people that buy it. And there is a, a lot of research about how to create a great culture of gratitude at work. It absolutely translates to your personal life. I always say, look, it's a great way to lead. It's an even better way to live. And in a moment, we'll be telling you what I'm going to be taking away from this interview. And I'll be interested to hear what you're going to be taking away. And of course, those three things that Chester knows to be true. If you want to find out more and continue listening as part of our supporters club, here come the details. But before we do that, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.